0: Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, a piece-by-piece, episode-by-episode exploration of the winners of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, with hosts Andrew Grenade and David Thurmeyer. Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, episode 35, where we're traveling back to 1977 and the 32nd winner of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, Richard Warnick, for his Visions of Terror and Wonder. So, this is going to be an interesting episode for a lot of reasons. It's Um, been a while since we've had one of these. Yeah, it has. I, I remember our Douglas Moore episode. We had no score, no recording, and this is another one of those cases. So... We'll do the, you know, we'll try to give you some uh, information about Wernick, who is still alive, and as well as uh, the piece, as much as we can uh, tease out and give you, there's actually some interesting stuff that we'll get to a little bit later. It's always an interesting
1: episode. It is.
0: Whether we have the music to play for you or not. True, true. So Andrew, what is your experience or knowledge of Richard Wernick and his music? Well, I've been learning a lot about Richard
1: Wernick for the past two weeks, (laughs) getting ready for this episode, (laughs) and that's it. (laughs)
0: I'm right there with you. Yeah. I'm right there with you. Uh, I think he's another one of those names that you see on, you, you know, we're old, but we used to check out CDs oh, from right. the music library, and you would, you know, you'd be looking for a piece by George Crumb or something, and then there'd be a piece by other composers, Jacob Druckmann, former winner, mm-hmm. Richard Warnick, current winner today. Uh, so you, you would know these names, but... I did never listen to. Well, and
1: it's the Pennsylvania collection. It, well, that's true. Connection that there. Yeah. Yeah, it would be. So, so and I think that's where I saw his name. Taught with George Crumb yeah, at. I mean, yeah. that's kind of uh, the extent of what I knew of him. I had never heard any of his music, I had never read an article about his music. <laughs> I mean, complete blank slate when I started doing the research for this podcast.
0: Yes, likewise. Now, I think it's somewhat interesting to point out that this is the second piece for mezzo-soprano and ensemble uh, that we've had. Our previous one was the Dominic Argento.
1: Not that long ago. Not that
0: long ago, yeah. So the Pulitzer's kind of taking a turn into vocal works, uh, which is the first time we've seen a song cycle. Uh, This piece, I don't... Well, we'll get into it, but not really sure what it is because we don't know what it sounds like (laughs) or haven't looked at it. We're just reading descriptions, but... It's not quite like the Argento, which had a lot of short songs. This seems like it has bigger sections. But in any case, why don't we uh, at least get into Wernick's background and tell the story? Telling
1: the Story So I think it's surprising we don't know about Wernick because he was kind of on a roll in the 1970s, especially around this time. So the year before the Pulitzer, uh, he was uh, won the American Academy of Arts and Letters Prize. Uh, he won a Guggenheim Fellowship, both of those in 1976. And then 1977, he wins the Pulitzer for Visions of Terror and Wonder. So th- those are big deals all clustered right there in the late 1970s. So he was clearly a force at that time on the American musical scene. Mm -hmm. And probably from his perch at Penn, uh, there were
0: some other famous composers there, so he would have visibility. So like you mentioned, George Crumb and uh, George Rockberg, Mm -hmm. to name a couple of the other famous ones there. Uh, So he did have quite a, a record going at that time. And someone asked him in an interview, I found... How do you? Or how did you know? Or you know, did you think it was a big deal to win the Pulitzer Prize? And he said, "Well, I just remember it was the year of the bicentennial. That's how <laughs> I remember I won it. It was a piece in 1976, and then I got it the next year. So that's really all I remember. So it clearly, made an impact. All these big <laughs> awards. Uh, well, they come that quickly. They do. That's true. That's true. You're just racking,
1: finding new places on your shelf to put them. But it also makes sense because of his pedigree. I mean, yeah." We begin to talk about names that are associated with him in terms of his study. So he's born 1934 in Boston, starts piano lessons like many composers at a young age, uh, goes to Brandeis where he studies with Irving Fine, Harold Shapiro, and Arthur Berger. So names that have come up on this podcast before. Uh, 54 and 55, he goes to Tanglewood where he studies with Ernst Toch and Aaron Copland. Two more winners. Two more winners of the Pulitzer Prize we've talked about. He studies conducting with Leonard Bernstein. I mean... We just, we're just just listing out the mid-century American composers that you need to know, and he studied with all of them.
0: Yeah, so clearly a big pedigree. Uh, we should mention that we did reach out to uh, Professor Wernick, but unfortunately weren't able to... Uh, Connect with him. So uh, there is a recent interview, though, that we'll post, we'll link to, that you can see him talking about this, his studies with Fine and Leon Kirchner, I mm-hmm. think also, another another yep. winner. So uh, it, it doesn't get any more pedigree for winning a Pulitzer than Richard Warnick. Uh, I found it interesting. I don't know. Do
1: you know anything about his work for stage film and television? So I know that he was writing a lot of incidental music and most famously for Midsummer Night's Dream. But I couldn't find anything specific, especially about his television film work. Because as soon as I saw that, you know, my antenna went up and I immediately started digging around. Uh, It's one of those things that if we had been able to speak to him, I would have asked him immediately, tell us about your work. Because this is the 1950s and 60s. He's getting established you know, as a young composer, he's taking whatever comes along, so a lot of work for stage uh, before he goes to start teaching. And that's really, I think, where his biggest contribution has been in American history, American musical history, is teaching. Uh, First at um, SUNY Buffalo, University of Chicago, and then the University of Pennsylvania for like almost 30 years, a very long tenure at the University of Pennsylvania as a teacher. Mm -hmm. And also writing for film and television,
0: you have to be, well, his approach to composition has been described as principled and pragmatic. And, which I love. <laughs> which Yes, of course. It's great. And he kind of talks about this in that interview that I mentioned. He mm-hmm. talks about how I still write with pen and paper, pencil, and I sit down and I do it and I get the piece done and you have to have a... The discipline. Bar. Yeah, the discipline to get it done. And then if I'm writing a piano piece, I go over and check that it's playable. and I don't just think about it and you know actually make sure that it's going to work so uh what do you think about this quote from uh, our, our frequent source bruce duffy i'm not writing to an audience which is illiterate and i'm not writing to an audience which is technically educated in music but i do write for an audience that i assume has experience in listening to music and is willing to at least meet me halfway so i'll go halfway to meet them
1: you know, in some ways, that's the mantra of people who win the Pulitzer. Yeah. That they are not discounting the audience. They're considering the audience. They're writing music that the audience will enjoy. But at the same time, they're not just writing what the audience expects. Yeah. I mean, I think you hear this. You read this this quote that he's saying, I'm, I'm writing for the audience. I'm thinking about the audience. And you think, okay, he's just going to be pandering. to it. His music is not pandering no. in any way. It's It's very technically proficient. It's very carefully crafted and he uses a lot of modern techniques but he expects that the audience is going to be familiar with those techniques and he's going to write something that they're going to enjoy if they're willing to not let their ears <laughs> lay back in the easy chairs <laughs> we keep referring to as former winner uh, Charles, Charles E. e. Ives yes, would say. Uh,
0: yeah. yeah I, I wish I, I honestly don't know enough of his music or didn't listen to enough to know if that's really true uh, I listened to a couple of clips and it does sound like it's not completely alienating, like some other composers of his time period or in the avant-garde tradition. But uh, I wonder how it would go over, I and mean, we're gonna we're gonna hear about the reception mm-hmm. of this piece a little bit later in the podcast.
1: Well, I also think about so we talked about George Rockberg and George Crumb as colleagues. Those are two men who also, in the late '60s, early '70s. Decided they wanted to write music that was appealing to audiences and not alienating to audiences, so it makes sense that that would kind of be an aesthetic of that group of individuals. Yeah, that's a great point. Very
0: true. Well, uh, well, should we try to go behind the notes, just speculating on those notes? Well, let's do that now. Behind the notes.
1: All right, so Visions of Terror and Wonder was commissioned by the Aspen Music Festival in 1976 and was written for Jan DiGattani. And I thought it would be useful to hear a little bit of a previous work that he had written for her. Uh, This is a work that came out in the early 1970s called A Prayer for Jerusalem. And it's written for a a chamber group as opposed to mezzo-soprano and orchestra, the way Visions of Terror and Wonder. But I think it might give us a little bit of a taste of maybe what the sound world that he was working in, because it's a similar time and it's for a similar voice. So here's a little bit of Prayer for Jerusalem, the second movement. So Dave, I sprung that on you. You did, I know. <laughs> you had not heard that before. What did you think? Well, I, it reminds
0: me somewhat of crumb hmm. in the, some of the vocal techniques and the, the vibes with the vibrato on mm-hmm. and the, the timbral kind of clangy metallic sounds. Yeah. So it, it does kind of have that, but also not crumb-like either.
1: It's, yeah, it's a little more um, varied than it, crumb. Yeah. Crumb tends yeah. to give you a timbre and a sound and stick with it and yep. this is a little bit more varied.
0: Yeah. Well, I also find it interesting that he's quite, quite concerned with, uh, Jewish, his Jewish faith Mm -hmm. and borrowing from texts and, uh, using extracts from different sacred uh, texts, including the piece that we're going to talk about, the visions of terror and wonder, which is a large work, which is based around three, the three major world religions Mm -hmm. of Christianity, Judaism, and, uh, Muslim Mm -hmm. faith, so it's all kind of different things sung in Arabic, Hebrew, and Greek. So, how does that strike you? Does that seem like it would be a? a, It seems like, in a way, it'd be difficult to fuse all those ideas together.
1: Well, but what he's doing is he's tying it through with theme. Yeah. So the visions of terror and wonder are all about you know the end of time. (laughs) That's what he's pulling from for all three of these, um, these texts. So the idea of a you know a purifying obliteration is what he said. In the in the program notes, so the idea of the world coming to an end, and then a new heaven and a new earth being created, and so he basically gives you that if you look at the movements. So there's four movements: um, a vision from Judah, which is text from Isaiah; a vision from Mecca, which is from the Quran; a vision of the end, which is from Revelation. So there you have Judaism first movement, second movement, Islam, third movement, Christianity, and then the final is the vision of paradise, the recreation, and the text in that case is again from the Quran. So in that way, it's interesting because he's giving you these different visions of the end of times and the recreation after the end of times of a new heaven and new earth. We, I mean, go back to someone like Messian is yeah. interested in these same... This is a very common theme kind of in the mid part of the century. We think about after the destruction of World War II, oh, people yeah. are just dealing and here. Wernick is dealing with the destruction right after the Vietnam War. And so a similar kind of headspace for a composer. How do you wrestle with this kind of contemporary situation for mankind? I mean, <laughs> what are we living in and how are we living and How are we dealing with the fact that we can obliterate each other and we can do all these horrible things to each other? Well... Here's the way that these three religions. So I think that thematically, I think it makes actually interesting sense. And it's presented in an ecumenical way. It so is. all of them
0: are kind of treated equally. And there's a quote from an article, we'll link also from the Jerusalem Post, where he says, the use of scripture has been a constant theme in his work. There's a great richness in religious texts from which one can find musical ideas. Mm-hmm. There's the thing that's so good about them is that they allow themselves to be treated in any musical style. And that's obviously through music history, all three uh, well, at least in this, this piece, the three major religions are, mm. have been treated texts in many different places. So. Well, and he
1: did this regularly. Um, the other piece I really listened to, because I wanted to get a sense of his vocal writing yeah. um, of the time period, uh, was his Kaddish Requiem, which mm. just from the title, well, again, is fusing Judaism and Christianity. Yeah. Uh, so again, this is kind of a theme that he's dealing with, especially in the 1970s. So this very much fits into that time period. Uh, I don't see this later, looking at later works of the same kind of thematic tying of scriptures from different religions that seems to kind of go away but especially in the late 1970s this was very much where he was and so this is i think representative of that early time period of his career there
0: was i wonder what it was about the that particular time period because i'm thinking of uh, well this summer i heard uh, Leonard Bernstein's Kaddish symphony mm-hmm. And then also the previous summer, two years ago, I heard his mass, which was from around this time period, in uh, 71. And around this period, everyone's having these crisis, crises of faith and putting it into music and what's the purpose of life and why yeah. are we here and all of
1: that. And this was 30 years after. Well, it's the same time Arvo Pärt is doing the exact oh, yeah. same thing in terms of his music in... Uh, Eastern Europe. So uh, there is something in the water (laughs) in the 1970s, especially the mid and late 1970s uh, of kind of a, I guess there was such a swerve away from religion in the mid part of the century, especially amongst composers, that now it's like we can re-embrace in a more spiritual way as opposed to a religious way. Because it's not usually tied to a specific religion. It's usually tied more to the idea of spirituality. I mean, think about Bernstein's mass mass, is is drawing
0: from everything. everything. Mm -hmm yeah, that's, that makes a lot of sense. And, and getting away from the some of the earlier prize, well, not, not as many of the prize winners, but at least the more, you know, like the Stockhausen's, Boulez's, mm-hmm. which is very scientifically kind of treating music as science in a lot of ways and turning away from that as we move through the 60s with all the upheaval mm-hmm. around the world then. So it makes sense. And, it, uh, and writing for voice, obviously, is a, is a great way to express it because... Warnick uh, Wernick says the joys are the fact that the human voice is the most glorious instrument of all. I'm not sure I would say that. I would probably put the horn.
1: Oh, uh, I don't but, know why you would put uh, the horn,
0: <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Horn <laughs> but Player. I, but anyway, uh, but the emotive quality of text in dealing directly with singers has been satisfying. Uh, if you write music that's difficult, there are probably a limited number of singers who are going to be able to do it. And mm-hmm. Jan D'Agatani pre- premiered a lot of new music. She was the, always on the crumb uh, black Angel mm-hmm. or uh, uh, Ancient, Ancient Voices, Voices. of Children and and some of those works.
1: So, yeah. But it's an easy way to begin to get that message across. And if we think back to the Norman Della with the Pulitzer Prize winner about Ecclesiastes. Oh, yeah. But there's no text there. And so you're trying to draw the emotion out of it and figure out based on the program notes. Well, here you don't have to because you can just listen to the words and understand what's happening. Yeah. Very true. Well... let we uh, see if this was a hit or miss (laughs) for us? Sure. Hit or miss.
0: Well, let's start with what the jury said about this work. Okay. Well, there's some interesting uh, things to note here. So the... Jury from, this is a report, 1977, unanimously recommends Visions of Terror and Wonder. The work was commissioned, as we just said. Uh, The work is a profound reflection of opposing states of feeling achieved through striking and expressive use of voice and orchestra. The score combines the greatest economy of musical means with the highest degree of expressivity. So that's pretty... Yeah, that makes sense from what we it does. we could draw from yeah. our exploration of the piece. Exactly. The jury considered the work to have merits and distinction far beyond all other works considered. However, here we are again. So we don't have a surprise winner this year. But we talked about how Ulysses K was the mm-hmm. first black uh, juror, and he is back again, along with George Crum. Oh, I wonder Gee, what I happened wonder what... there.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and Robert Ward, the okay. chair. Previous winner. Previous winner, yep. The second choice of the jury is Dialogues for Cello and Orchestra by George Walker. Hmm. Interesting. Yes. So George Walker, famous African-American composer, would later win in 1996. uh, But he was ranked number two here in 20 years earlier. That's fascinating. For this work that was commissioned by the Cleveland Orchestra in 1976. So... It says it is an eloquent and forceful exchange between the solo cello and orchestra, and the dramatic writing is dramatic and vivid. So yeah. yeah, so again, looking behind the scenes, you see a lot
1: more going on to the story. Well, and we've discovered that knowing the jury is always fascinating, kind of revealing as to who won and why, or yep. just like last episode talking about Ned Roram. Oh yeah, the, <laughs> surprise. the surprises there, so it's always interesting to see uh, it's not so cut and dry, it's not always. This is clearly the best piece, and it should win. Right. There's a lot of machinations going on. And to that effect, I have more for you. There's a
0: a memo attached. Ward and Kay strongly favored this work, the Warnick, at the first meeting with Crumb's concurrence. At the second meeting, Ward and Kay continued discussion on this work. Ward said about it, this establishes the standard Crumb had almost no part in the second discussion. At the point of the vote, the agreement between the two was strongly unanimous. The work was nominated by Eugene Moon of Theodore Presser Publications and the chair of the music department at UPenn, Lawrence Bernstein. Wernick, Wernick was the former chair of the music department until 1974. So what does that tell
1: you? That there's, again, some... Yeah, it's it's <laughs> curious because it could be that Crumb thought, "Well, he's my colleague. I should step back." Yeah, conflict of interest. Conflict of interest. Maybe there's something going on departmental <laughs> politics, <laughs> yeah, which of I course never about. happens in a music department no, of a university.
0: Never, never. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. So, a couple of notable things here with the with George Walker and with the odd meetings about uh, the odd happenings yeah. at these meetings.
1: Well, what else was on the premiere?
0: So, on the concert, we had. Another Jacob Druckmann work. So we have double concerto uh, after Francisco Cavalli for woodwind quintet and tape. Ave Maristella by Peter Maxwell Davies. Mm. Interesting. That's an interesting choice. Yeah. yeah. Then a piece by Oliver, is it Canuson or Nuson? Knusen, I believe. Yeah. Called Trumpets, which is not for trumpets, but for soprano and three clarinets. Mm. And then this was the final piece. So uh, a mixture of British and American British composers. and American, yeah, yeah, exactly. So this was the third concert of the Aspen Music Festival in 1976. That's also a different kind of venue. It's not it is. New York Philharmonic or somewhere in Lincoln Center or something like that. This is a, a festival.
1: Yeah, and, and it took three years for it to show up in New York. So the New York yeah. premiere didn't happen until March of 79. The American Symphony gave that Carnegie Hall, but they did an all-American program. I love this program. Including uh, I really love this program too. Carl Ruggles Men in Mountains, Charles Ives' Decoration Day. I mean, right there, those are oh. two right in Dave Deermeyer's wheelhouse. We're sitting we're going to this concert. <laughs> and here. then Aaron Copeland's piano concerto, which I absolutely love as well. Yeah. So this is a great concert. Yeah. So the review in the Times was written by Joe Horowitz, and it's kind of middle of the road. It's not yeah. it's especially for a Pulitzer winner, it was not as um Overflowing with praise. Now, this is what he said. Although it generally dispenses with tonality and motivic repetition, which we would assume from the Mm -hmm. other pieces that we've listened to, the new work seems relatively traditional in terms of instrumentation and texture, which makes sense. It's for orchestra and mezzo-soprano. In fact, its colorful evocation of the biblical Middle East nearly amounts to a latter-day shlomo or (laughs) salome. Oh, there are abrupt staccato fanfares for muted trumpets, shrill, chattering choruses for massed woodwinds, and gaudy sprays <laughs> of spangles and glitter from the percussion department. We heard some some of those uh,
0: from a different piece, but some spangles, spray of spangles and glitter. That's a great I, I'm going to
1: keep that phrase. That's yeah. a good one. The vocal line incorporates chant-like ornaments, presumably based on liturgical models. The work's broadest gestures are clearly set forth, an impending vision of New Jerusalem, for instance, set to an emphatic marching figure that gradually builds, then dissolves for the closing vision of paradise. This, in terms, involves soft, euphoric chords that resolve to a hushed major triad under the word Shalom. It is all skillfully brought off, but on first hearing conveyed more effect than substance. One problem is that for all the dissonance, angularity, and metric complexity of their trappings, Mr. Wernick's descriptive devices seem too old and too obvious.
0: Hmm. That is really kind of not even damning with faint praise here. No, it's it's, it's very
1: middle of the road saying it's effective, emotional. It conveys, just like the jury said, it conveys the emotions. But... It's all flash. <laughs> it's all flat. yeah. Yeah, it's all too
0: obvious, the things you would expect. Like, uh, actually, when he describes that with a hushed major triad under the word shalom, which meaning peace, and you would expect you're not going to have a,
1: a cluster
0: or something. No. You would, yeah, that, that is kind of an obvious text painting
1: mm-hmm. kind of thing. Hmm. But it's effective. But it's and effective. And that's the thing. Yeah, is that yeah. It's effective because there's a history of that. Right. People have done that for a long time. And an audience would, would pick up on that exactly. as well. Exactly. Well, Wernick was also asked about, you know, what change winning the Pulitzer had for him. <laughs> and he's also milled the road about his reaction to it. He said there was immediate flurry of publicity and congratulations and phone calls. It was put in perspective by one of my colleagues, maybe George maybe Crumb, Crum. who called me up and said, I want you to know what this really means. It guarantees you an obituary in the New York Times. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Like, nice. Thanks. <laughs> What happens is that after several years, it goes away. I'm not going to deny it's easier for my publisher to promote the music of a Pulitzer Prize composer, and I'm sure there have been doors that have been opened for me by having won the prize. The important thing is that once those doors are opened, you start to open other doors on your own.
0: Hmm. So it gives you
1: a mechanism to pursue other things or to have other opportunities. But what's fascinating is that we've seen for a lot of these composers that doesn't happen. No, no. I mean, that really didn't happen for Richard Warnick. There weren't, a few years later, huge, bigger pieces that he was winning for. I mean, it wasn't like an Aaron Copeland. No, no. <laughs> that no. just continued to, to rise. So it's fascinating that, that he says the Pulitzer can do that. And in some ways he's saying it's up to the composer so that the composer can't open the door that's why we're not hearing from these composers after they won the Pulitzer. I don't quite buy that no. idea. But mm-hmm. I can understand why he would think that. It's a very much a pull yourself up by your bootstraps, <laughs> do your work, and you'll have the reward kind of uh, idea that was, I'm sure, very popular in the mid part of the century. Seems like we've
0: had several different consistent reactions from the composers to winning. One, it's really great. It helped a lot. Two, it was more like this. It's kind of a Middle of the road, as you as you describe it, and then the third, it was just like the kiss of death. Like, right, we just never heard disappeared. from. Disappeared. Yeah, <laughs> it disappeared. John Lamontagne. Yeah, never hear our, from him again. No, one of our examples. So, yeah, I mean, the thing is, somebody like Warnick already had a a plum academic mm-hmm. position in a prominent school with prominent colleagues. So certainly, it helped. I'm sure, but he probably wasn't, you know starving on the dissonances right. as george e <laughs> ives once said
1: <laughs> well unfortunately we can't do hit or miss because it's not fair to a work that we've never heard no so hopefully eventually this will get a recording and we'll be able to hear visions of terror and wonder uh, but until then that's it for this episode of hearing the pulitzers as always you can find more about this project at our website hearingthepulitzers.com where you'll also find links in a short bibliography where you can read more about richard warnick and we'll be sure to link that youtube interview because it's really fascinating from uh, 2021 follow us on facebook and twitter h pulitzers for links between episodes please leave us a review on apple podcasts to let others know what you think helps them find this podcast and then finally join us next episode where we'll be having our first ever live edition of hearing the pulitzers as we discuss michael colgrass's work for percussion and orchestra deja vu until then keep listening